You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Having a strong identity system is completely correlated to progress. These type of identities can make a big, big difference. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben talks about the state of Indiana taking legal action against TikTok. I look at the collapse of the FTX exchange and the arrest of its founder. And later in the show, Ricardo Ampere from Encode, we're talking about the egalitarian promise of digital identity. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. All right, Ben, why don't we jump right into our stories this week? You want to lead things off for us? Sure. So many states have been taking action against TikTok. I know in our state of Maryland, they banned the use of TikTok among state government agencies. Mm. So no more uh, funny videos from the Department of Traffic about snowstorms. Uh, (laughs) We have to suffer without that. Okay. Uh, But one state is taking things a step further, and that's the state of Indiana. Hmm. Uh, Its Attorney General, Todd Rokita, is suing TikTok under a state consumer protection statute. Hmm. So the allegation is that TikTok has deceived its users about China's access to their data. Uh, And he's also concerned, and he expressed this in the lawsuit, that TikTok is exposing children to mature content. Hmm. Uh, And this is the first time that a state has taken action in court against TikTok. It's going to go to the Indiana Superior Court. uh, So it'll be a state-based case. The allegation about China is interesting. It echoes, uh, I think, what we've heard from federal secretaries, including the FBI Director Christopher Wray and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, that this is a parent company that has very close ties to the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've talked about on previous episodes that they could mine this treasure trove of data from TikTok for all different types of purposes, including... Uh, national security-related intelligence uh, stuff uh, just because it's such a a rich source of data. TikTok, for its part, um, has tried really hard to prove its disassociation with the Chinese government. And I think the adjudication of this case will depend on how believable that is. Hmm. Uh, They have offices located in several locations across the world that are not China, 
And so I think they've tried to emphasize that though their parent company is a Chinese company, they are not beholden to the Chinese government. Uh, The chief executive of TikTok mentioned that the data of U.S. users is actually hosted on servers controlled by an American cloud computing company, being Mm -hmm. Oracle. And he said that the Chinese government would not be able to access that data. Hmm. Uh, The Indiana Attorney General uh, pushes back against those claims in this lawsuit, saying that Chinese law gives the government the authority to demand data from a U.S. affiliate of a Chinese company. Hmm. Uh, And even though TikTok has eventually promised to delete all of the U.S. users' data uh, from the cloud, uh, it's unclear how that's actually going to work in practice and whether data is going to be sufficiently uh, protected. So the lawsuit here is not just about... um, the fact that China has played such a large role in this company and that uh, there are risks to the uh, users in, in Indiana who use TikTok. Part of it is that the lawsuit alleges that people in Indiana have been misled, that TikTok has not properly represented its relationship with the Chinese government hmm. uh, and has made assurances about their data that don't stand up to the facts on the ground. And I think the ultimate result of this lawsuit is going to depend on that divide, whether TikTok can convince the court that it actually protects U.S. persons' data Mm -hmm. or whether the state of Indiana can prove that they're still susceptible to Chinese blackmail uh, and the forces of their authoritarian power. Could uh, the the local TikTok folks, I, I can, perhaps I can coin a new term here, eulogize this? <laughs> Could they take the the eula, which uh, I, re, I I reminded from uh, one of our other shows, um, Joe and I got scolded for not explaining what the term eula means. So it's end user license agreement. Um, could TikTok change their eula and say, hey, everybody, uh, if you want to use TikTok, your data might go to China. <laughs> so I don't think you can eulogize your way out of this, okay. so to speak. Uh, I think it's already in their EULA. Everything they would need to say to cover themselves legally is probably already in there. Right. As you can expect, uh, I'm a limited TikTok user, but I did not read the full 400-some-odd-page EULA. Uh, oh, come as, on. That's entertainment for lawyers. I you, know. I mean, I'm, I know I'm supposed to, but uh, <laughs> okay. I uh, fell asleep through through the first paragraph. So <laughs> Okay. Um, I'm sure they've covered their legal bases there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's just a question of the veracity of their claims. You know, I think they try and disclaim any liability by saying it's possible under some circumstances that uh, – even though we try to protect the data, it's going to be susceptible to government requests on, you know, in limited circumstances. Uh, I'm sure that's something that's in the EULA itself. Mm-hmm. But what the state of Indiana is saying is that they are misrepresenting their security to their customers and their public statements. So beyond what's on the uh Terms and conditions that nobody reads are public assurances that the data is safe Hmm. uh, and it's not prone to collection by the Chinese government. I think what this lawsuit is saying is that those attestations on behalf of TikTok and its CEO aren't backed up by what actually happens uh, and that the risks of Chinese access haven't properly been disclosed to TikTok users. Uh, 
I think one potential strength of this lawsuit in Indiana is looking at what's happening uh, overseas in Europe. Hmm. So in Europe, because of their stricter data privacy laws, they've been forced, TikTok has been forced to disclose that their data can be accessed by individuals outside Europe, including those in China. Uh, I think they made those insurances, uh, assurances slash uh, caveats, if you will, hmm. uh, in their terms of service in Europe because they realized they could face accountability under GDPR. Um, because they don't face that level of accountability in the United States, I don't know how strong the data protection laws are in Indiana. I don't think they're particularly strong. Right. We're not talking about California or Virginia, some of the states that have practiced, uh, that have passed these data privacy laws. Um, they might not have uh, disclaimed that liability or, or put a provision like that uh, in the end user license agreement in Indiana. Hmm. Uh, but the fact that they put this in the EULA in Europe might indicate what their actual practices are. Uh, so in the words of uh, the Indiana Attorney General, that is misleading and deceiving Indiana customers. So what are they after here? What is Indiana looking to get out of this? So they want an injunction uh, that would force TikTok to stop giving, basically be a court-ordered mandate to stop giving any data to the Chinese government. Hmm. And they're seeking what I would characterize as nominal damages. So they're asking for $5,000 per violation. Um, you know, that might add up when you think about TikTok and how many users it has nationally. Mm -hmm. Indiana is a state that probably has a population of some 8 to 10 million. Mm -hmm. So you calculate the number of kids and discerning uh, adults and uh, teenagers who are uh, obsessed with, you know, the latest TikTok trends. That's going to be a lot of users. I don't think it would bankrupt TikTok to have to pay the, that level of damages. I think they're more interested in the type of injunction that would force TikTok to take some type of corrective action. Hmm. Uh, and I think if TikTok sees that this is not just limited to the state of Indiana, that this is a model lawsuit, and that they're potentially going to be held liable in other states, not to mention that they're still under threat from being shut down or significantly regulated by the federal government, mm -hmm. uh, that might force them to change their practices or at least uh, – change some of these alleged misrepresentations in their uh, terms of service. So is the idea here that it, it, that TikTok has the burden of proof on them to demonstrate that they've put whatever they need to put in place so that it's not possible for them to share this data with the Chinese? So in a technical sense, the burden of proof is on the state of Indiana because hmm. uh, they're the ones initiating the lawsuit. Right. So oh, interesting. it's a civil case, which means the standard is preponderance of the evidence, which is 50% plus one. You know, mm -hmm. you don't have to be as sure as you are uh, about putting somebody in jail, but you have to have the better argument. So I think the state of Indiana is going to have to argue in court that TikTok is misleading its customers. Uh, we might get to the point where there's kind of a de facto portion of the lawsuit maybe that comes out in discovery where TikTok is forced to put up or shut up mm -hmm. and show to some level of particularity, and these are, are probably going to be in uh, ex parte proceedings, that uh, the way they are protecting their data complies with the terms of this Indiana statute. Hmm. Uh, but at least uh, from a facial level, the burden of proof is still on the state of Indiana to show that they're violating this consumer protection statute. Hmm. How do you think it's going to play out? 
I think this is going to be one of those endless lawsuits where uh, we go through years of discovery without much happening. Uh, <laughs> oh, goody. <laughs> I know, I know. I always want to have some satisfying uh, solution here so that we can get some legal clarity. Uh, I also think we know that this is not going to be the only state-based case against uh, TikTok. You know, I think states like to copy each other. Maryland might have been the first or second to prohibit the use of TikTok, uh, TikTok among state employees. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Utah was another, uh, another state that took that action. So generally, these types of cases come in bunches, hmm. uh, and you might see a series of state cases. It would really only take one successful case and one sympathetic court to get TikTok to, to really uh, alter its practices and, and do a better job of safeguarding the data. Um but it just remains to be seen uh, whether any of these states can get by, past that threshold matter of showing in court that they're actually misrepresenting themselves in a way that violates uh, consumer, consumer protection laws. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, <laughs> nothing to do but wait, right? Keep an eye on it. Yeah. I wish, <laughs> I wish this could be one of those things where like – you know, within one or two weeks, we could have some preliminary resolution so that we could yeah. give our listeners an answer here. But I mean, could t- could TikTok basically just put an end to this by saying, hey, you know, here's everything you need to know and here's what we're doing to make the changes you requested to so go away, please? Yes, they could try and do that. Yeah. Um, that would that could be part of a pretrial settlement uh-huh. uh, and they, they might do that. Their other option, which is what I suspect they'll probably do, is answer the complaint in Indiana court with kind of a point-by-point, you know, denying with some level of specificity all of the allegations uh, in the complaint. And Mm. I think that seems to be the strategy that they're going to take if you take their public statements as any indication. Okay. Uh, They have pretty good lobbyists and lawyers in the United States, and I think they've done (laughs) a good job, particularly at the federal level, convincing policymakers that they are not uh, a pushover for— the Chinese uh, communist government. Hmm. Uh, And yet the director of the FBI remains skeptical. (laughs) Right. Well, it's a little hard to buy off the director of the FBI. You know, members of Congress, you can wine and dine, take them to the nicest D.C. restaurants. Right, right. He's such a buzzkill. I know, they're not (laughs) as... Ray. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, my my, uh, sister... Uh, Secretary Yellen's <laughs> sister by another mother. By another mother, exactly. <laughs> right, right. So you know, I, I tend to think that they have a pretty good public relations strategy fo- so far, mm-hmm. and they have a major advantage in the court of public opinion because they are the most popular social network in the country at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, and they have the youngest user base, which means. TikToks are TikTok is very valuable to advertisers, oh. um, and that's something that could certainly factor into this. Right. So it's a it's a money making machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, For everybody, everybody. <laughs> u- yeah, everybody uses it, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly the biggest companies in the country have taken advantage uh, have taken advantage of that. So you know, perhaps they weigh in on this Indiana lawsuit and say, you know what. We're pretty confident in TikTok, too. <laughs> let's like, not be hasty here. Let's not be too hasty. I think we're, you know, we can all benefit from this relationship. Right. Uh, TikTok is is standing pretty strong in how it's responding via statements through its legal counsel and other representatives basically saying that they're confident that they will fully satisfy 
all reasonable U.S. national security concerns uh, and that they've tried to implement uh, solutions to prevent the undue collection of data. So we'll see how that believable, how believable that is in a court of law, mm-hmm. uh, if it ever gets to that point. Mm. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Um, I want to talk this week about FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, who's the founder of FTX. Now, 30-year-old Wonderkind, who is now, uh, <laughs> I think as we speak, he's probably in the process of getting extradited to the United States. He was That's arrested right. last night in the Bahamas. Yes. So you just enjoy a nice vacation in Atlantis, going down the water slide, and mm-hmm. those Bahamanian uh, law enforcement officers pull you right out of the water. <laughs> They're sweating there uh, with a nice, fluffy, dry towel. Exactly, exactly. Um, So I want to go through this together because we haven't really talked about this here. And I think there are a number of really interesting policy elements to this that that we can dig into. Um, Do do you – are you familiar with this enough that you could just give a little bit of the backstory of what FTX is and who this guy is and why we should care about them? Uh, Sure. So FTX is a cryptocurrency company. Mm -hmm. Uh. They had really gained in prominence over the past several years. Uh, I kind of knew them from their advertising. Mm. Every umpire in Major League Baseball has an, or at least had an FTX logo uh, on their jersey. Hmm. So it had gained in prominence as kind of the second generation of crypto companies mm-hmm. uh, after we got the the Bitcoins of the world. Right. Um, Samuel Bankman Freed was their CEO. Uh, and he had gotten in, uh, in trouble with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission for basically misleading the consumers about the benefits of, uh, this online cryptocurrency platform. Mm -hmm. Uh, he has denied any criminal liability. Uh, he said he never, quote, tried to commit fraud, um, but who does? (laughs) Right, exactly. Uh... (laughs) There's also there are also money laundering charges mm-hmm. uh, that uh, ha- have been alleged as part of this criminal complaint. Uh, so it's I think part of a broader picture where the cryptocurrency industry is kind of falling apart. Um, cryptocurrency lost a lot of, a lot of value in markets over the past year. Right. Um, I think the bubble, as most bubbles do, kind of come crashing down. Yeah. Uh, and FTX was kind of at the center of that. What I think Bankman-Fried has tried to do is go on a bit of a public apology tour where he says, I, I, might, have, I might have made some mistakes, but I never committed fraud. Hmm. Uh, and I think that was a huge mistake on his part because— yeah. uh, The SEC begs to differ— Right, and generally, if you're uh, if you're facing legal liability, the last thing you should want to do is make a bunch of public statements. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the last element that we should consider here is he was due to testify in front of the House Banking Committee, uh, and there was some question about whether he was going to show up. It seemed like he was going to write a statement, but might not show up. So that's kind of another element. Did I miss anything? Or is that- no, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I, I'm, I, my understanding is that some members of the media have seen his prepared statement, so they know what he was going to say. He's not going to say it because, as you say, he's in the process of being extradited. Um, one Can of I just thing- add one thing really quickly? Yeah. 
the uh, media has released the first line of his opening statement at his uh, what was going to be his testimony in front of the Senate, ba- uh, the House Banking Committee, right? And I'm going to quote this uh, without using the actual swear word in this sentence. Okay. But the first line was, I would like to start by formally stating under oath, I blanked up. (laughs) He effed up. He effed up, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So what a guy, this SBF. Well, yeah. Here's what I'm I'm curious to to chat with you about with this is I'm I'm trying to separate – the alleged fraud here, the alleged mismanagement of this company with cryptocurrency, the exchanges, the currencies themselves writ large, because I think they're two different things. Um, I think there's a lot of people um, who are sort of celebrating the collapse of this who, because they're saying, see, I told you so. There's nothing to any of this crypto stuff. It's all a ripoff. It's a house of cards. It's uh you know, it's tulip madness all over again. It's beanie babies. There was never any value here. Ha ha. You all got what you deserve. <laughs> no one will be laughing when I sell my beanie babies collection and make millions. So <laughs> right. Let's just right. hold off on that. <laughs> so, but that's different from what may, what is alleged to have been going on behind the scenes here, which is, you know, Bankman Freed was allegedly funneling billions of dollars to his own hedge fund mismanagement, giving himself loans worth billions of dollars. So all sorts of behind-the-scene things that are bad stuff, bad no, allegations. Known as fraud right. uh, in the industry. Yep. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that and, – and let me just say at the outset here, I'm not trying to be an apologist for any of the cryptocurrency folks. I Count me as a cryptocurrency skeptic, right? Same I, here. And I, I think <laughs> I've been from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, it just never yeah. made sense to me. And I've had friends uh, tell me how wrong I am. But you and I have stood pretty strong on this over the yeah. years. So that's where I'm trying to come at this from is, is the – the difference between could this have been, you know, garden variety, albeit with large sums of money, garden variety fraud, which is alleged here, uh, versus the fundamental underpinnings of the exchange and cryptocurrency itself, can we separate the two or are they hopelessly intertwined? So I think you make a good point. I think there are two separate issues. One is with the enterprise itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other is with Samuel Bankman Freed, who is just kind of a con artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, allegedly. Allegedly, right. yes. <laughs> this has not been proven in a court of law. Right. I wait for the actual case. <laughs> right. Uh, this allegedly brought to you by the CyberWire's legal team. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I loved the radio voice you used when yeah. you did that. Uh, so starting with SBF, I think we've seen actors like this in the financial sector pre-cryptocurrency, and we will see it post-cryptocurrency. I mean, mm-hmm. this is he's basically a crypto Bernie Madoff, yeah. uh, and this is a pyramid scheme where he was taking other people's money uh, and uh, fraudulently using it for his own enrichment. Mm-hmm. Allegedly. (laughs) And it's all great as long as the prices keep going up. Right. People start to notice when uh, the industry comes collapsing upon itself. Mm -hmm. The second element of it, uh, apart from SBF and FTX, is what's happening in the industry itself. I would say that, yes, you can isolate Samuel Bankman-Fried. It's not endemic 
to cryptocurrency to have somebody who's alleged of doing these terrible things. Mm -hmm. But I think it's particularly prone to it for a couple of reasons. One is just our past experience. We know that several of these exchanges have been under federal investigation, Mm -hmm. Uh, Binance being one of them, the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange. Uh, Some of their top executives have been under investigation for potential fraud. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other reason I think it might be more prone to this type of fraud is because it's new and it's relatively unregulated. Right. Uh, So it's one of those, it's not a sufficient explanation to say, oh, this is cryptocurrency. Of course, this is by nature fraudulent. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think that's just kind of one ingredient into what happened with Samuel Bankman-Fried and Mm -hmm. FTX. Let's talk about the regulatory element, though, because I think there are lots of people who will look at this and say, well, crypto has been an interesting um, playground, right? I mean, it's it's been an interesting test case to to have, uh, could this be the future of finance? And is it better to let the market decide? Is it better to let these things play out the, the the regulators have been, as you say, relatively hands-off when it comes to this. So there are some who would say, well, that's great. That's the way it should be. I imagine at this point there are some saying, see, told you so. These these uh, these knuckleheads can't be unregulated. We got we to gotta get them under control here. Yeah, I mean, I do not want to get too political here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've seen this happen Numerous times, this is not a cryptocurrency problem. This is a financial regulation problem. Mm-hmm. There end up being these dangerous financial products that are getting a lot of people rich. Uh, and when those products are valuable, uh, when you know everybody's making billions off of cryptocurrency or subprime mortgage loans or the dot-com boom in the late uh, 1990s, I think the SEC and other government agencies are like, you know what, let's not mess with this. Uh, Sometimes they'll even take deregulatory efforts to kind of let the market flourish. Um, And then there's always the proverbial turd in the punch bowl, usually a consumer advocacy group that's like, hey, uh, this is actually presenting some risks. Uh, We've built this house of cards that's very unstable, and if it's not properly regulated, when it comes crashing down, we're going to discover a lot behind the scenes about what, right. yeah, what I mean, went wrong. Elizabeth Warren's kind of built her, her career on She's on been doing this, this right? her entire life. I yeah, mean, that's right, one of the reasons right. we have the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is right. we wanted to prevent something like this from happening uh, in the future. So I just... One thing that's frustrating to me is not enough people when cryptocurrency was valuable, and this is a very late 2021 mindset, but mm-hmm. uh, not enough people stopped and said, you know, now is actually the time where regulators should get their hands on this because, yes, it might cut against the value of cryptocurrency, Um But if something seems too good to be true, it almost always is. And it's better for regulators to get involved early before – you have a, a situation like you have here where people are getting arrested and individual innocent Americans who have invested their earnings in uh, cryptocurrency exchanges are really suffering as a result uh, of what's gone on in this market of the, over the past year. So that's yeah. just my personal view. You know, I think the libertarian view is that whenever the government gets involved at any point, things inevitably get worse mm-hmm. uh, and – 
I think the other side of the ledger is this is what happens to an industry that is under-regulated. Yeah. And, and I mean, partially to your point, there there are a lot of um, uh, like retirement funds and things like that that, that were heavily invested in this um, I, and have lost their money. I suppose you could say, well, they took, they rolled the dice, they took the risk. This is, everybody knew this was high risk. It was high risk, high reward potential, right? So, you know, dial in your risk, uh, <laughs> your risk ratio, your, your, uh, your, your ability to absorb risk and, and off you go. Um, but at the same time, I can't help wondering, will this be the thing that, tr- that triggers more scrutiny and, and perhaps, uh, more regulation for the whole industry. One funny anecdote about all of this is there was a Super Bowl commercial with Larry David. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's actually, to me, it's one of the funniest Super Bowl commercials I've ever seen, (laughs) even though it was apocryphal. (laughs) So they have Larry David at various points in history kind of poo-pooing various modern inventions. Right. So he's like, wheel, what are are we going to use that for? (laughs) Right, right. Uh, And then at the end, you have this guy in Larry David's office trying to sell him on FTX as a currency exchange. Mm -hmm. And Larry David's like, eh, I'm, I don't buy it, and I've never been wrong about this type of thing. <laughs> and the irony of this is that the character that Larry David is playing in that commercial has actually been vindicated. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> this all did come crashing down. Their own commercial. Within a year, yeah. And it was, yeah, it was their own commercial. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I do feel sorry for people who took this risk. Um, yes, they did know it was a risk. Uh Lots of financial products that have, I would say every financial product that seems to have an unlimited reward comes with what should to most people be an intolerable level of risk. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, that's why regulations are important so that you can minimize those risks and also make sure it doesn't have downstream uh, ripple effects on the economy. I don't think cryptocurrency has risen to the level of prominence in the macro economy that it's going to have the type of effect that the collapse of the housing market did in 2008, for example. Mm. Um, so I think we can be sort of grateful that this bubble burst before we got hurt uh, even more as a country. Hmm. If you're one of the other exchanges, what are you thinking right now? Uh, I would get all of my legal ducks in order and make sure that <laughs> maybe, maybe it's time for a little internal audit. Yeah, I would check our own books right, and just expect right. that there is going to be a DOJ, SEC, or IRS investigation at some point and make sure that um, every last dollar is accounted for. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think this SBF experience will lead regulators, particularly at the SEC, uh, to put a watchful eye, whether fair or not, onto all of these other cryptocurrency exchanges. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'll have links to a couple of the stories that are covering this in the show notes. I mean, this one's everywhere, so it's not hard to find. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to discuss here on the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, 
The best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Ricardo Ampere from Encode, uh, and we're talking about digital identity and, and some of the promise that that has as we move forward. Here's my conversation with Ricardo Ampere. From a digital identity perspective, there's a big revolution happening around the world. And it happened because with COVID, there was a big change. Before with COVID, when you wanted or when someone wanted uh, to verify people's identity in a high security setting, they would ask someone to go to a physical place and have a human being verify their identity. And of course, for obvious reasons, people didn't want to go to um, to doctors, to notaries, or didn't want to go to a bank branch. And digital identity, high security digital identity became really important. And in, in that sense, what changed was that companies needed to find an alternative that was uh, technologically viable and was online to verify people's identity with ease and with security. And, and not just that, the fact that identity uh, was based, it still is based on a piece of paper, which was an, an Egyptian invest, invention from 3,000 year old. And the fact that we can't learn from someone's identity oh, and, and we have to repeat the process of asking for an ID and, and proof of address and many things over time makes it a very, very obsolete industry that is prime for this change. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. You know, I, I think about uh, my youngest son who's working on getting his driver's license and just everything we have to go through with that of getting a copy of his birth certificate and you know all all those sorts of things. Um, and and is is your sense that that's simply not good enough anymore? It is absolutely not good enough. Uh, as as you know, many people in the U.S. for several purposes buy fake IDs. It's easy. You get it through FedEx and, and, and DHL. And uh, to go through that process that your son is going of verifying that he knows how to drive and, and, and that he is who it, who it is so that very easily someone else can uh, take his identity is something that I don't think it's, it's, it's cool and appropriate. Well, I, I think about my own experience, and, and as you mentioned, you know, I'd, I'd say my driver's license is my primary form of identification. Where do you suppose we're heading then? I mean, what, what could replace that? Yeah, so if you think about the things that are wrong are, first, as I said, it's a piece of paper. B, that is based on, on, on human beings trying to verify that with all the biases unconscious or conscious human beings have. The third is that you have to repeat the process over and over. You can't learn from your previous experience so that every time it's easier and more secure. Uh, and, and a big one is privacy, that you have to go and for every uh, bottle of beer you want to buy, you have to show your ID and, and the tender knows exactly uh, where you live, what your blood type, you're the donor. It just doesn't make sense. So we're going to a place where 
uh, IDs are more accessible because it's online and you don't have to go to a physical place where there's a lot less bias because even for all the bias that people uh, think about machine learning and technology, it's a lot less than humans. And so we think of an identity that's more inclusive and accessible because it's just a fairer identity. Uh, one where uh, with all the consent of users and, and embracing the privacy laws, we can understand through your behavior, if you're you or, or not, and every experience that you go through, it's just easier than the previous one. That's the fourth, the third one. And, and finally, privacy, that, that you can buy the ball of beer by attesting that you're over 21, or you can be on the metaverse uh, with a different name, different form factor, but still you're safe to interact with kids. So we're going into much more intelligent, accessible, and, and safer identity. And how would this work? I mean, if I'm uh, you know, walking up to buy that six-pack of beer and, and I'm uh, going to interact with the person behind the counter, how do both of us do that? So imagine uh, the, the first thing is that you need to prove that you're you and, and there's a certain set of technologies that help you to do that. Uh, the iPhone made uh, facial recognition accessible and, and, and everybody's now now feels good by looking at your phone. You can get access to it. So imagine it's the same technology. You go to that store, you show your face and, and you give consent. The only thing that person gets is that that person is over 21 or you look at your phone and you show your phone and, and you present your phone through uh, wireless technologies and, and we can uh, we can do exactly the same. We, we essentially transfer a certificate that uh, that person knows that you're 21 and if you get audited, I mean, they won't get audited, but think about a use case that's a little bit more serious like that, it's important that the person who's actually giving the service has some sense of, of, of auditability and a certificate that, that that person can show to an authority proving that they're actually complying with the law, but not necessarily they have to have information that uh, is just completely relevant. Well, I think about, you know, from a security point of view, again, going to my driver's license, it has a, a hologram on there that helps... Uh, you know, verify that it's legitimate. Is the the digital certificates that we're talking about is is that the digital equivalent of that hologram? Yeah, it's 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 a good comparison. The security features that are on your driver license were made so that very easily with with light or just basic equipment, you can prove that that was a genuine identity. And then you look at the picture, you compare that. And, and yes, it's that person. So it's the same thing, but digitally. But except with the fact that it's just very easy to fake a, a driver license nowadays, even if you're comparing the information versus the information that's provided by the DNV, it's just very easy to take a picture of, of an existing real driver license and, 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 and use that information or just copy that into a new driver license. So instead of that, you use biometrics and other technologies so that you through a certificate that's literally impossible to fake because it's using cryptography, uh, you can actually prove certain uh, characteristics about the person and everything, by the way, is with consent. So so you have that use case of, of retail, but just think about banking. Think about how cool it would be if uh, you already are using, let's say, uh, a company that uses Encode and the next time you're going to go open a bank account, it's just a matter of presenting your face, 
precinct a second factor like your last four digits of your social or your phone number. And then with that, we consent. You transfer just the information that the bank needs from you, nothing more, nothing less. And with that, in 30 seconds, you have a, a high uh, security transaction that's a lot easier. We think that's where we're going. And what is the initial setup like? I mean, how do I establish to my mobile device, let's say my iPhone, that I am indeed who I say I am? Well, there's going to be different ways how you do it. Some of them are going to be by relying on your phone, although we don't think it's the perfect one because you your phone um, can be stolen. The best way is yourself, right? Like they can steal uh, a password. They can steal a device. But it's very difficult to steal a face, particularly with with kind of world-class technologies like we and others have. And so imagine, um, you know, uh, walking to a, one of the fintechs customers like that we have, such as, for example, Chime or customers like we have at Citibank. And imagine that you go open that bank account, you provide that information. But the next time that that you do that, it's just going to be easier because with your consent, we have that information and we can share it in an intelligent way to the next company that you want to uh, interact with. And, 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 and as you go through that process, it just becomes a lot easier. Now think about the country. Think about a person who is doing fraud. Right now, these people go from bank A to B to C doing fraud. And these banks don't talk to each other, at least from identity. They do for credit fraud because there's a credit bureau. But from an identity perspective, they have no way of knowing. And so with what we're proposing is there's a way where banks don't have to share the information, but when we see a face and where we see a driver license, we can ask the banks, hey, is this uh, Dave or not? It's, it's not telling me, give me all the information about Dave into a cent- that I can store and then maybe hackers can get into that. It's not that. It's just asking them, hey, is this face or is this driver license Dave? And they answer yes or no. And with that, uh, it's impossible for fraudsters to go from from one bank to the other. Tell me about some of the privacy features here. I mean, I, I think for a lot of folks, they, they may be concerned or uncomfortable with the notion of uh, having their ID scanned and then stored. You know, I could see if someone went to a, a medical clinic or a gay bar or something like that. How do you ensure that uh, privacy is maintained? I, I think... There's a misconception um, where where a lot of people think that privacy laws are a problem for our industry. Actually, it's a blessing for our industry because what they did is they changed the premise of who is the owner of the information. Before those privacy laws, the banks and and the and the bars or whoever you asked for that information became the owner of that, and then they could share it to other people without your consent. And by these laws asserting that the citizen is the owner of their identity means that the citizens are in the driver's seat. And so they can make the decision of which companies they want to interact with, which technologies they want to be part of it. And that allows us to be breaking information silos and enable use cases like the ones that I just described. Think about the status quo. What is easier? If you go and show your ID to buy a beer, or to get into the stadium. It's just very easy for someone to just take a picture of that and they have all your information. And then if you compare that to the digital equivalent, when we ask for ID, we don't store a photo of your ID. We don't store a photo of your face. We store a cryptographic equivalent of that, a hash. 
that represents that information. But even if it's stolen, even if it's unencrypted, it's not a picture. It's not something that they can go and transfer and use. And so if you compare the status quo versus that, it's just a lot. It's like exponentially easier uh, for people right now with the current status quo just to take a picture versus getting your information um, the way we store it. So if I'm understanding you, I mean, is it correct that, say, for example, I, I wanted to go uh, buy that beer, um, I could set it up to say that really all I want to do is verify that I'm old enough to do this. They don't need to know my name. They don't need to know my address. All they need to know is that I am indeed old enough to make this purchase. It's exactly right. And and so that's the only information that they keep. And even, you know, companies that did more information, like, for example, a bank or, or a fintech or, or a doctor, uh, the way they get that information is in a way where it's just much more protected. They know just information that you need to give them to them. They don't have, uh, you know, they or us, like they, they, we don't store the copy of the ID so that some hacker can go and steal it. We have a certificate that says that we check that ID, that these are the tests that we did, and we're sure that this person is who they say they are. So it's a very different proposition. If a hacker were to just get a certificate that says we did a test, as opposed to, hey, here's the picture, here's the ID, which is right now if you go just to a normal doctor, right, and, and they scan your ID, they scan your insurance card, they actually have the pictures. So what we're proposing is something that is just common sense. We store only the information that we need to store, and we don't store something that people can identify you biometrically uh, easily. What do you suppose it's going to take to see widespread adoption of this, You know, to make this be the ubiquitous next standard? Look, it's interesting because it's already happening. After COVID, a lot of the digital channels were, were quite inefficient. So we were talking to a few of our bank customers and imagine that when someone wanted before COVID to get a checking account, I would say like 95 or more than 95% of people that go to the branch, they get their checking account. But when they had to do it digitally, it's only 40% that they could get it immediately. The, the rest have to go through a very lengthy process and a lot of them dropped off. So because of that, these companies had to adopt these technologies. And in right now, uh, hundreds of millions of Americans are already using. So that's, that's really good news. The second thing that is, that is important is that around the world, these technologies are even more used because the first thing we use in the U.S. is social security number, but it's a very U.S.-centric thing. When we're thinking about the world, the first thing they use is an ID, that piece of paper. So around the world, everybody's using this type of technologies. And the most interesting thing is the amount of progress that it comes with it. Because 1% increase in the amount of trust that we have between each other correlates exactly to 0.86% increase in GDP. So it's almost one-to-one -one correlated. And so the more people use these trusted technologies, the more progress we can see. And we can see that in India. India 12 years ago, was one of the lowest trusting societies in the world. Like only about 9% of Indians trusted each other. And what happened is that government and companies went to, came together and built a digital identity platform that now every Indian uses. And it's pretty safe, pretty inclusive. And right now, India is the most trusting society in the world with about 58% of Indians trusting each other. And, and, and they're growing at 9% per year. So... Having a strong identity system 
is completely correlated to progress. And certainly in the U.S., where about 20 years ago, we're about 50% uh, uh, trust. Now it's about 37% trust. These types of identities can make a big, big difference. I buy it. I uh, was a little <laughs> skeptical in that interview. Okay, fair enough. I thought it was interesting, but like, and maybe this is just me being naive and set in my own ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just think there's so many different ways that digital identity could be potentially abused. Mm. Uh, I think he was very he was dismissive on some of the controls that we have on. Regular identification, that's certainly a, or non-digital identification. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's certainly a good point. I guess I'm just a little skeptical that the technology uh, exists now and and is scalable in a way that this could be our our new form of identification. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Well, we appreciate him uh, coming to join us and uh, sharing that information. Interesting stuff. We do appreciate him taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>